Hey, all you Theosciples, I'm Michael. And I'm, I'm Brendan, Brendan from Finding Christ in Cinema. You are listening to the Theonauts Podcast with your hosts, David, David and, and Jeremiah. Right here at gctnetwork.com. Your, your Great, great commission, commission Transmission. It's the Theonauts. The 171st episode. The one where our goose is cooked. The Theonauts Podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's Word. Hello, all you Theo Bohemians out there. I'm David Gaddy. I'm Jeremiah Orr. Together we are the Theonites. What's up, Dave? Sup? It's been a couple weeks. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. My bad. Hey, at least uh, at least we're back on track. Yeah, we're not we're not messing it up. We're here. Yeah. The the weather's been too beautiful. It has been. <laughs> we had to go out last Sunday night and play volleyball. Yeah. Dude, you should have seen me. I was a beast on the volleyball field. Yeah, you were. Court. <laughs> Whatever it is. I was amazing. I even like did this jump and hit the and ball. Fell in the sand. Yeah, and fell in the sand and hit the ball perfectly <laughs> for Jacob to score. It was amazing. You you had a couple of those. But you know, in all fairness, David, you used to like actually play in a league. Yeah, but that's so, been twenty years ago. <laughs> has it really been twenty years? Yeah, I was like wow. in my mid twenties whenever all that was going on. What are you gonna do for the last fifteen years of your life? I go play volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Good to know. I'm joking. You have plenty of years ahead of you. Yeah. Totally. It's like on um Instagram I posted a a picture Sunday of me uh like just driving my little convertible around, you know. And <laughs> I wasn't even paying attention to what I was videoing. I was just holding it while I was driving. And you can clearly see the speedometer. I'm hitting like 90, you know. (laughs) And so I've been getting people like commenting and uh, and be like, uh, uh, yeah, I see you hitting the curve at 90 miles an hour there. And one of my friends put hashtag, uh, you're only as young or you're as young as you think you are. (laughs) That's so true on your behalf. Absolutely. I feel like I'm 90, man. I'm so tired tonight. I don't know what it, what it is, but I'm really excited about this topic. And so, like, I'm torn. <laughs> Wanting to Trying fall to get asleep. Energy, energy. Yeah, just a little bit ago, we sent David back because he forgot the recording stuff, and I took a nap on his couch. That didn't help. And just crashed out. I did. As soon as I hit down, I was like... Like, oh, man, it's crazy. Oh, well. But we can't sleep right now because this is an amazing topic. So we're diving back into... Reformed. Yes. Reformation. Well, and... This is October. We've been doing an ongoing biography... Oh, that's right. We have been doing that. Yeah, thing, and we've hit... Who we talked about? Augustine or Augustine, however you want to say him. Have we done Luther yet? I don't think we've done Luther. Um, we've probably done Luther. We've not like per se. I mean, I don't think we have an episode like dedicated straight to Martin Luther. But 
But we have done a lot of historical people. And so, that's right, <coughs> tomorrow is October 31st. Happy Reformation dun, dun, Day. Dun, dun. It's the, uh, we just celebrated the 500th an- anniversary. Mm-hmm. So now it's the 501st First. anniversary of the Reformation. And so we thought, what better way to celebrate it than to talk about one of the Reformers? So. Yeah, and actually, arguably one of the first Reformers. Well, and even a pre-Reformer, if you want to. Yeah, that's true. Look at look at it like that. So, I don't know. You want to hit the button and dive right in? Sure. Okay, that's not. Wow. <laughs> that was not what I was expecting. What in the world? That is the Bohemian Rhapsody. Ah, I get it. Yes. I get it. Oh, how clever. And it kind of fits because, you know, they didn't spare him his life from this from mon- the monstrosity. <laughs> And so uh, they would not let him uh, go. <laughs> as much as he cried, let me go. And there's probably plenty of uh, of Roman Catholics that thought that uh, Beelzebub had a devil set aside for him. That's right. <laughs> so the person we're talking about today is John Huss. You can spell it J-O-H-N-H-U-S-S or J-A-N-H-U-S, however you want to spell him, if you want to look him up. John Huss, and like I said, he was an early reformer, a pre-reformer, if you will, because he predates Luther by about 100 years. Yeah, He's right in between, well, he's kind of a contemporary <clears throat> of Wycliffe, but no, he was, yeah, he's a little bit after. Right, he's Wycliffe, right in between so. Wycliffe and Luther, and uh, he's an amazing character, a very interesting character. Um. There's not much about his personal life. There's a ton about his theological life, and so... Yeah, that's kind of where we're going to camp. Guess that's where we're going to hit, but <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about where he was born and, and why we talk about gooses a lot, whatever we talk about him. He's known <laughs> as the goose father of the Reformation, because yeah. John Huss was born around 1369 in southern Bohemia in a town named... Husneck, which trans Very appropriate, yes, which translates to goose town. <laughs> Hus is the Czech word for goose, mm. and so John Hus is actually John Goose. He was a goose from Goose Town. He was a goose from Goose Town, and he actually loved referring to himself as the goose. In fact, that's what he preferred. <laughs> Evil to refer to. Uh, yeah, kind of like on Top Gun. Yeah, he was <laughs> goose to uh, Maverick. <laughs> and uh, But the reason he liked it is because if you think about a goose, geese aren't very much the uh, most noble of the farm animal creatures or the most beautiful. They're, you know, they're pretty simplistic. They don't uh, provide a lot. They do 
provide some protection. They they can get cranky and hiss a lot. Yeah. At predators, they they can, they can raise a whelp on you pretty good. Yep, they can peck and raise a whelp. <laughs> They're not beautiful, but um, and they also are used for eggs. Right, they produce eggs, and so farmers use them for that. But also, the biggest thing is for food. Yeah, they use them. To kill him, you burn him and cook him. <laughs> Huss viewed himself as the goose of theology <laughs> in a lot of ways, and his viewing of that was absolutely dead on because that's exactly what happened to our buddy John. So he was born in 1369, Southern Bohemia, what is now the Czech Republic, but he was a Bohemian. Not much about his family other than he was poor. He was born poor. And in order to escape poverty, he decided to become a priest because priests kind of, if you, if you became a priest, you moved up in society a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, priests were kind of like running the show at the time, right? Uh, the Roman Catholic Church was both government and uh, spiritual leadership at that time. And so even though they had kings, those kings bowed to the Pope. And priests were the Pope's, um, basically, initiators. And so um, <clears throat> he became a student uh, in for the ministry in 1393. Um, this is about 10 years after the death of Wycliffe. Mm-hmm. Um, and about the same time as Anne's death... Um, so let's see. Let's talk just briefly about Wycliffe because he's going to play. I mean, yeah. a large role in in all this. So um, a lot of people don't realize this, but Wycliffe is responsible for the very first English translation of the Bible. That's right of the New Testament. And um, however, this predates the uh, printing press, mm-hmm. so uh, there was no pressings of it made. No printing. Uh, of it made right, so um, it was all every copy that that has survived is all hand illuminated, hand uh, scribed, and uh, and it's actually a very hard translation to read because this is the very early onset of the English language anyway, right? And uh, so a lot of things hadn't been quite established yet, but uh, this is probably one of the big things that Wycliffe is 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 mostly known for is his translation of the Bible into English. Right. Um, but a lot of people don't realize that Wycliffe was a reformer before it was cool. And yeah, way before. We're talking like almost 200 years before Luther even nailed his 95 thesis on the door of Wittenberg. And when I say reformer, Wycliffe had a passion for Scripture, number one, that was different than any other... Um, priests at the time. Mm-hmm. He really saw scripture as the ultimate authority. And he also had a hang up on authority itself. He didn't like the idea that the Pope had he didn't believe absolute power. That he didn't believe that the Pope <clears throat> was God's spokesman on earth. He wrote a lot of essays about yeah, that. Treatises. A lot of treatises. <clears throat> he um he he was seriously convinced that the church itself was not the same type of church with its hierarchy of structure, basically the Pope and the cardinals and the priests underneath um, who administered the 
catechisms, and anybody who partook of the catechisms was a member of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. That was their definition of the church universal, and he did not believe that. In fact, he really saw that in Scripture, the uh, the sacraments, did I say catechisms? Mm-hmm. I'm tired. The sacraments, administering yeah. the sacraments, and uh, if you, you are a member of the Roman Catholic Church, if you partook of the sacraments, <clears throat> and he in contrast, believe that you were a member of the church universal if you believed in Jesus, which was a radical idea at the time. Yeah, and, and, and it, didn't have a, it didn't have a huge following. He didn't, unlike a lot of the names that come after him, including Huss, um, he didn't have like this huge following. He didn't have like, it wasn't a movement. Yeah, and, and there was nobody really concerned about him because of that. No, it was just like he's making a lot of noise, He's writing these treatises. Uh, he's basically, in in a way, uh, he was labeled a heretic right. uh, because of his, um, his his views against the the church structure. But it was more like, look at that crazy guy. He's so weird. Yeah, crazy old man. Which is really interesting because I mean, he even attacked the foundational issue of transubstantiation. He was, believe it or not, before again. I love. Um, I was watching a. I, I like watching this. YouTube channel called the Lutheran Satire, mm-hmm. and it makes fun of well every other religion. This uh, <laughs> denomination is not Luther, <laughs> but it showed there was this one video, and I love that Luther's like he's nailing his ninety five thesis to the, the door, and then Calvin comes in, he's like, yeah, not only that, but we should burn all the heretics, and then another guy comes in, he's like, yeah, not only that, but transubstantiation's bullcrap, <laughs> and uh, Luther's <laughs> like, wait, wait, you're hijacking my Reformation. No, Mr. Luther, in fact, you hijacked Wycliffe's re- Reformation right. 200 years before that. He was preaching the same things, but he was saying things that were shocking, like, your salvation isn't found in the literal bread and wine yeah. that you take during the yeah. sacrament. So just to, to clarify on terms here, transubstantiation is is the belief um, that was very prevalent during this time that we're talking it about. Was, it was law. Where it, it, it <laughs> is that the the bread and the wine of communion of the Lord's Supper was actually, it actually becomes physically the the flesh and the blood of Jesus, like right. there is a miraculous transformation on a um, on a cellular level, right? Exactly. And this becomes the blood and the and the the um, uh, the body, the flesh, right? And this was a foundational doctrine <clears throat> of the Catholic Church, and the mm-hmm. reason being, this was the pathway to salvation. You had to do the sacraments, and the major sacrament was partaking of the Eucharist. Right, mm-hmm. and so, in fact, they would have parades where they would literally parade around the bread and the wine before they would do the sacrament. Right, and like worship, make an idol out of it. Yeah, worship the bread and wine, and right. that was another thing that Wycliffe preached against. Was he was an iconoclast? He he hated mm-hmm. idols, and so he saw that the the Catholic Church was full of a bunch of idols. He didn't like the relics, the selling of indulgences. I mean, all of these are straight down the line Reformation beliefs. Mm-hmm. Wycliffe wrote a book called um, "We're of Getting the, Off of the Church Big Time of the Church," mm-hmm. where he really addressed a lot of these issues. And then he also believed that 
the biggest problem with all this is he was they were the church was actually creating a hierarchy in which they treated peasants and lower class citizens or people who spoke regular language as somewhat lower because they weren't able to study yeah the theology and Wycliffe was a um, was a linguist right so um, and hence the one who translated the Bible into English first. Uh, but in doing so, he had access to the actual scriptures, being able to read and understand the Latin Vulgate, mm-hmm. whereas the common person could not. And uh, so I guess to kind of sum up on, on Wycliffe, he, he died of natural causes. And um, years later, when the church uh, finally declared him um, a heretic, dug his bones up, burned them. Right. <laughs> and we'll get to that because so, actually a lot of that has to do with Huss's story. Um, that whole that whole encounter mm-hmm. actually uh, labeled Huss a heretic right along with him. So yeah. um, back to Huss during his studying years in in college. Again, he went to to study to become a pastor or a minister in 1393. During his formative years in college, he he got a hold of Wycliffe's writings mm-hmm. and he was, um, he was an OG fanboy for Wycliffe. <laughs> yes. Like he Big hardcore time. loved what Wycliffe was saying, even though everybody was like, uh, this guy's kind of weird and out of it. Mm-hmm. Huss was going, no, this guy is nailing it. And I'm watching this happen right now. There were several different things going on. Um, there was upheaval, at this time in the actual political structure of the church, as well as the political structure surrounding the church with uh, certain kings. And he saw this as a, a sign of what Wycliffe was talking about. Huss fundamentally believed, uh, through Wycliffe's writing and some others, that the Pope should not be in control of both spiritual rule and um, civil rule. In fact, there should be civil laws that govern the people that are apart from religion. And a lot of this has to do with his Bohemian Czech upbringing because mm-hmm. there, was, uh, there was a lot of push on that um, that caused a lot of turmoil in his, in his town city. So he fell in love with Wycliffe because of that, because Wycliffe was basically saying, no, the Pope has, has no authority. He, he shouldn't have the authority. The church has the authority and Jesus Christ is the head of the church. So the, the ultimate authority rests with Jesus. It's a big deal. So fast forward a little bit, and by 1402, Huss has become the priest of the Bethlehem Chapel in Prague. Um, this is probably the largest church in Prague and one of the largest churches in Europe. Um He's also become the director of two colleges in connection with the church. Um, so a couple of very interesting things. At this time, um, a lot of the preaching was done in Latin. Right. So all the Latin mass, everything was held in Latin. Well, Huss did his in the native Czech, Czech mm-hmm. tongue um, because he wanted the the basic people to understand. And it was in the same time frame that he actually translated some of Wycliffe's 
writings into right. Czech. Exactly. So that uh, he could distribute it among the the Bohemians. Right. And a lot of people <clears throat> loved him. I oh, mean, he got a good following. He yes. got a huge following because of that. Even the king, right? Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, because basically, I mean, it's the gospel. What is not freeing about the gospel, especially to those who are under persecution, mm-hmm. right? The gospel is is life to the dying. And uh, it's not so much life to the ones that are in control of that dying. And so, <laughs> so it got a little bit of a backlash. Um, he, he did more than 3,000 sermons in his lifetime. Back then, uh, preaching was a, uh, a daily event. It wasn't just on Sundays. Right. Um, so it was, it was treated as entertainment. So the people would go and listen to Huss preach every day. And he was preaching these these beliefs, these ideas, um, and it was growing a, a huge following. Um, and from the pulpit, he even began to uh, denounce the moral failings of the papacy, of the bishops. The yeah. I mean, that was like a common a common theme, theme in his preaching in his, in his sermons. Um, yeah, a lot of people were like, boy, that guy's kind of harsh. And in fact, that's that's the whole, another one of his images of the goose, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea of he's... he's Honking. He's honking. <laughs> and, and he is, I mean, he's going after the papacy, and he's going after the priests who say one thing and they do something totally different by the lives that they're living. And you know it's funny whenever you have a guy like this because you're popular among the people, mm-hmm. but the, the the higher ups aren't crazy about him, right? And then you've got like, of course, he was underneath this archbishop, archbishop uh, Zajic, mm-hmm. I believe it. I don't know how to pronounce it, but anyway, so this this guy didn't know what to do with him. He tolerated <laughs> the rantings, but because of the people, but at the same time, he ends up appointing him a preacher. Right. Um, at the synod, at the local, so I mean, it's just like he's supporting him to the people, but he's having to answer upstream as to why this guy, you know, right. <laughs> is doing what he's doing. So, a couple of things you have to understand. So, this archbishop that you're talking about, the Archbishop Frog, within a year of uh, of Huss's appointment to Bethlehem Chapel. Um, 45 of Wycliffe's articles are condemned by the... <laughs> by this archbishop. Yeah, by this archbishop. and Zajic. This is just the beginning of excommunicating Wycliffe, which they will end up doing. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can be excommunicated by the time or after you die. It's pretty funny what happens. But uh, Zajic, yeah. Uh, and another thing you have to understand is he's German. Mm-hmm. Half the faculty in these colleges associated with the church were German. And half of them were Czech uh, people. And right. so there's some racial tension going on. The, Hus- the Hussites are mostly Czech, and they're really supporting um, Huss. And <clears throat> well, there's a lot of, of bleed between Bohemia and Germany, right. So as it was for Ever. hundreds of years. Yeah. Right? But uh, so you had like, uh, like the king, for example... This um, how you pronounce that? Wenslas 
good Wenceslas. King, he's good got King a, Wenceslas. Yeah, yeah, he's got a uh, a Christmas carol. Have you never heard that? Yeah, yeah I I've love heard that it. song. But anyway, Light um, K does the best. Get the album, let it snow, baby, let it reindeer, and listen <laughs> to Good King Wenceslas on that because it is amazing. It's hilarious. So anyway, so anyway, ahead. he's King of Bohemia. Yes. By um, by inheritance, mm-hmm. so like he, like he is the natural born king right. of Bohemia. However, he also becomes king of Germany right. by election, and so it, that just goes to show you how intertwined these uh, right. these countries' governments were. All right, so the archbishop <laughs> basically goes to us and he says, "Look, you got to stop with the Wycliffe stuff." No more. You can't <laughs> preach it anymore. Quit it. And by the way, if you could chill out on calling out, calling out the you know the papacy for the clergy and the clergy <clears throat> for their you know terrible acts, that'd be pretty cool too. So he goes and he basically appeals to Good King Winsalus, right? <laughs> good King Winsalus. And uh, I mean that's his title. He's the Good King Winsalus. It's a great. There's like yeah, that Carol is all about how. Like he took care of these travelers, these poor travelers, and gave them food, and it's so sweet. So, anyways, it's a great, great story. All right, so this guy was apparently great, and uh, so basically, the Czech reformers force out the Germanic faculty, including the archbishop, and hold them at bay. Mm-hmm. And basically, say, "No, we're going to go with Hus. Hus is in charge. We're going to allow Hus to tell us what's true and what's not." And so there's this power struggle going on. So it the arch uh, the archbishop goes back, and who does he go to? Of course, the Pope, mm-hmm. right? Pope Gregory, yeah, <clears throat> Gregory the twelfth. And here's something interesting going on here. Also, we have a pope and an anti-pope that are ruling at the time, quote-unquote. Right. So Gregory is the one in Rome, but there's another pope. uh, Is it Alexander? Um, I don't have it written down here. Let me me look at this. Uh, I have it somewhere. Benedict. No, it's Alexander V, anti-pope Alexander V. Oh, okay. That's right. So he... uh, Um... What was I saying? Oh yeah, so the uh, the Archbishop apply, you know, um, goes appeals to the Pope in Rome in fourteen oh nine. This ends up officially condemning Wycliffe's teachings, and then excommunicating Wycliffe. Yeah. What do they do? They they go dig him up. They dig him up. <laughs> they burn him, burn his bones at the stake, and they sprinkle his. His ashes salt, in a river. Whatever. That's salt right. Salt is grave. And they burn up all his teachings. But by officially condemning Wycliffe's teaching, they also, by proxy, condemn Huss's teachings. Mm-hmm. This is the first step. So Huss removes himself from under the authority of Pope Gregory and says, No, then, Pope Alexander's our Pope. <laughs> which buys him some time, but not a lot, because Pope Alexander doesn't like what he's saying either. And Pope Alexander ends up excommunicating uh, Huss 
by 1411. But, you know, and you have in the same time frame, though, you also have um, uh, Good King Winsalus. Yes. You have him, like, also following suit. Like, he is, Mm -hmm. he's denouncing Pope Gregory, um, and he ordered the clergy in Bohemia to observe a strict neutrality in the schism. Right. That's that's the idea here. So, you know, there's this whole Pope Wars going Mm -hmm. on. Yeah. Which also leads a lot of um, clout to what Huss is saying and Wycliffe is saying. Yeah, yeah. He's if, ma- they're making his point <laughs> for him. Exactly. If the church can't even agree on who their who spokesman the Pope for God is, yeah. <laughs> then how in the world is that you know official? What's, what's going on here? So, anyways, uh, whenever they excommunicated Huss in 1411... Ooh, there was a riot. It caused a ton of riots. The Czech people um, in Prague, they loved, again, they loved Huss because he was giving them the gospel and and showing them compassion. And so what do they do? They revolt, and it ends up with the archbishop running away from Prague. Um, So uh, this is the big whole thing. Um Part of it was Huss, and the other part was they were trying to earn indulgences, or they were trying to tax, basically tax the people with indulgences mm-hmm. in order to raise up. Gregory <coughs> was trying to raise up an army to fight Alexander, right, in the Pope War. Right. And so there's a lot going well, on. Well, yeah, there was a crusade that had happened uh, in 1410 mm-hmm. uh, against the um, the king of Naples. Yeah. I mean, like there was all this stuff that was all this uproar that was happening. Right. And this is actually one of the things that uh, Huss addresses in his writings because um, he wrote a book also entitled Of the Church. Of the Church, yeah. Uh, or De Ecclesia. Which is pretty much a word-for-word ripoff of Wycliffe's. Of Wycliffe's. Of well, at least the first few chapters. Apparently. Yeah, like the ten chapters or so on. And, uh, but... Anyway, he he. One of the things that that he he tackles in here is this whole thing about um, crusades. Yeah, because the crusade thing was just like, oh, okay, well, we're gonna go uh, take care of this with the sword. And there's actually chapters in the book right. saying that uh, Jesus never condoned the uh, the use of the use of the sword to um, to. Uh, propagate the gospel, right? And so he he was like coming down on everything that they were throwing at him, like the crusades, the indulgences, um, the, the leadership primarily, the, right. the whole uh, um, structure of the church. Well, uh, he he actually even said the clergy and the church are interchangeable, like it's the same thing, like we're all clergy, right? Like we're all, it was a very that's a revolutionary It is, thought. especially for somebody that's in, in 1411 saying that, because you got to understand the church had absolute control mm-hmm. over everything up to this point, and it seems like they're kind of starting to lose it. And so, yeah, you're right, um, which really ticked off every every leader in, in, uh, in, in the Roman Catholic Church. And so um, the Pope issued a papal bull, I basically said, anybody in Prague is not allowed to take communion until you remove Huss 
from office, basically. You remove him from There's no politics in that the priesthood. <laughs> Until he's gone. No and and remember, if you're not partaking of communion, you're not a Christian. <laughs> you're not going to heaven when you die. Right, right. Yeah. And Huss actually believed that too. Although he was a proponent of Wycliffe's, he didn't agree with everything Wycliffe said. And he wasn't a transubstantiationist, but he was a... Consubstantiationist. Exactly. So he believed that kind of like uh, when Jesus came down as man, mm, yeah, he was fully God and fully man in the same way the bread is fully bread, but it's also fully Jesus' yeah, flesh. The yeah, the body and the and the and the blood are present. Right, they're just not replacing. Yeah. you know the actual bread exactly. And, wine. and so Huss was an an advocate of believing that you need to take the Eucharist in order to be a Christian, and so he he cared more about his people than he cared about that position, and so he runs away. He flees. He leaves Prague and he goes into hiding in exile a little bit. But even though he went into exile, he didn't stop writing. Um, and his writings still reached Prague, and people were still listening to Huss. Um, well, and uh, you're, you're still in that 1410, 1412 time frame, right? Oh, yeah. So you have this, uh, uh, this one event where... Um, Three guys from this lower class oh, yeah. uh, come up, and they, they openly called the indulgences a fraud, yeah. and they got beheaded. Right there. Like, bam. <laughs> right. And so um, these were later considered to be the first martyrs of the Hussite movement. Right. And um, Oh, and by the way, this is actually taking on a Hussite. Yes. I mean, this is the name of the people. They are Hussites. Kind of like which, Wycliffe's had a movement, had a name for his movement, too, and I forget his the name of the people who followed him. Hmm. But Hussite was becoming a big deal in, in the Czech, uh, not Republic, but... Uh, the Bohe- Bohemia. Bohemia. Well, yeah. in fact, the largest... The, it became... Like, but the Bohemians got behind Huss. Right. And uh, by by and large, the Bohemians were Hussites. Right. Which was part of the problem, because now the, 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 the quote-unquote, the church was trying to determine, okay... We need another crusade. Yeah, we need to go in and and have a holy war. And there was there was right. a Hussite war that came out of all of this. And so and that'll happen after Huss dies. Right, but, right. So at first they actually tried to there there was one meeting where they tried to uh, quote unquote put aside differences. Yeah, and try to unite everybody. And Huss didn't show up for that one. And then there was a second one. Uh. And this one will result in Huss's death. Death. Is there anything else you want to? No, that's you're talking about the Council of Constance. Yes. Mm -hmm. So in 1414, Huss is in semi-exile. The Hussites are about ready to rebel. I mean, they're they're there. There's a lot of tension, and uh, so they decide to convene a council to figure out what to do here. Oh, wait a second! Before we jump into that, yes, um, let's talk about his. his appeal to Jesus. Yes, that's a big deal. Too. Okay, so this was this this was actually uh, for many people who see uh, like for example, uh, you had Martin Luther with his ninety five thesis na- nailing, nailing the, the ninety five thesis to the wall. Uh, one of the things that that Huss did that is kind of considered his moment uh, like this was um, before he left Prague, um, he decided to to take this this uh, interesting step. 
And he said he no longer put his trust in an indecisive king, a hostile pope, or the ineffective council. And on October the 18th, 1412, he appealed to Jesus Christ as the supreme judge. And by appealing directly to the highest Christian authority, Christ himself, he bypassed the laws and structures of the medieval church. So for the Bohemian Reformation, this step was significant, as significant as that 95 Thesis posted at the Witten, at the Wittenberg uh, Church by Martin Luther in 1517. Right. This is basically them saying, we don't need the Roman Catholic Church. Right. We can create our own. Jesus is our boss. Jesus is our king, our, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it's not, and he's our pope, and it's not these guys. Right. And so that was a huge deal. So anyways, um, going back, the Council of Constance in 1414... The Roman emperor, Sigmund, sent Huss word and said, Listen, I'm going to grant you safe travel to and from. There's no way that you're going to get hurt, um, but you need to go and you need to make an appeal to these people. We need to work something out. Um, And so Huss went, and as soon as he showed up, and this is in 1415 when it actually happened. Yeah. As soon as he showed up, they basically sprung the trap. It's a trap, right? Yeah. And they found him guilty of heresy. And and I he he kind of you kind of think he has to know what's going on, right? Because uh, it was interesting that before he set off to go uh, to this to Constance, he um, he actually got his will in order, right? So. Uh, is pretty good indication he knew uh, what this was going to lead to. Uh, and they, they really kind of pulled uh, a trick on him uh, because they said he broke the, um, oh, what was it? He went and celebrated Mass. Yeah. And that was apparently violation of restrictions decreed by the church. Right, because in his... Uh, in his excommunication, he wasn't allowed to celebrate math. At right, the Church. right. So that's so as so because of that, they were able to find a loophole to actually arrest him. So they arrest him on trumped up charges, right, and then use that to proclaim him a heretic, right. So he is arrested and he's kept for months uh, in a cell with very little to eat and drink. Locked up, basically treated like a nobody. Um, and and Sig, uh, Sigmund, by the way, who was the um, the emperor or the 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 king of, of, right. of Rome, uh, who had actually guaranteed his safety, was actually really upset about this whole thing. By the way, so. yeah, he was. He really thought that he could guarantee his safety somehow. <laughs> but again, uh, there's there's no way that they could. So they finally. They did the the trial um, on, it started on the, well, in, in 1450, but the last trial was on the 8th of June in 1415. 39 sentences were read to him, 26 of which had been exert, uh, uh, started, sorry, excerpt, excerpted and pulled from mm-hmm. uh, the book of the church's De Ecclesia. Seven from his treaties against Palix, and six from against Sterenvlav. Um, they they found him guilty of number one that he had erred in the thesis in which he hitherto maintained that he had renounced them 
the future, and he recanted them, and that he declared, or this is their, this this is what they asked him to do. He he asked that they asked him to to say that he had erred in the theses, that he renounces them, that he recants them, and he declares the opposite of the sentences. Right, right. Um, for which, of course, he doesn't do. Yeah, he um, he actually said that um, he asked to be exempted from the recanting doctrines, right, which he had never taught. Um, others, which the assembly considered erroneous, he was not willing to revoke. Right, um, to act differently would go against his conscience. So there's there's some there's some similarities you'll see here get repeated with, with Luther. With Luther. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Uh, so they condemned him. Uh, at high mass and a lit- liturgy, Huss was led into the church and de- uh, delivered an oration on the duty of eradicating heresy. So he's standening up there and <laughs> they're listening to some guy preach to him. Yeah, the Bishop of Lo- Lodi is preaching about eradicating her- heresy. Then they ask him to recant again. He doesn't. And so he's going to be. Uh, Executed with fire, um, which is crazy if you hear about the execution. I have actually an excerpt of an eyewitness that's really cool, and I'll read this if you okay. want. Yeah, go ahead. Um, it says, but prior to that, they placed on his head a paper crown for vilification, saying to him, among other things, we commit your soul to the devil. And he, joining his hands and lifting his eyes to the heavens, said, And I commit it to the most merciful Lord Jesus Christ on account of me, a miserable wretch, born a much heavier uh, and harsher crown of thorns. Being innocent, he was deemed deserving of the most shameful death. Therefore, I, a miserable wretch and sinner, will humbly bear this much lighter, even though vilifying crown for his name and truth. The paper crown was round, almost 18 inches high, and on it were shown three horrible devils about to seize a soul and tear it among themselves with claws. The inscription on the crown described his guilt uh, read, This is a heresarch or a heresy teacher. The king said to Duke Ludwig, the son of the late Clem de Baria, who then stood before him in his robes holding the golden orb with a cross in his hands, Go receive him. And they said, Clem's son then received the master, giving him under the hands of the executioners to be led to death. When so the crown he had led uh, from, uh, sorry, when so crowned, he was then led from the said church. They were burning his books at that hour in the church's cemetery. When in passing he saw it, he smiled at their act. On his way, indeed, he exhorted those standing around or follow him not to believe that he was to die on account of errors falsely ascribed to him and deposed by the false testimony of his chief enemies. Indeed, almost all the inhabitants of that city bearing arms accompanied him to death. And having come to the place of execution, he bending his knee. I read another place where he actually talked about John Wycliffe there, Mm -hmm. and he said he couldn't wait to... Dan and talk with him. Oh yeah, I, I saw uh, saw something about that as well, which is which is kind of cool. Yeah, um, it says the place of execu- uh, execution was among gardens in a certain meadow, as one goes from Constance towards the fortress of Gittleben. 
between the gates and the moats and the suburbs of the said city. Some of the lay people standing about said, we do not know what or how he acted and spoke formally, but now in truth we see and hear that he prays and speaks with holy words. And others said it would certainly be well that he have a confessor that he might be heard. That a certain priest in a green suit with a red silk lining sitting on a horse said he should not be heard nor a confessor be given to him for he is a heretic. But Master John, while he was still in prison, had confessed to a certain doctor or monk and had been kindly heard and absolved by him, as he himself stated in one of his letters to his friends from prison. When he was praying, the offensive crown already mentioned, painted with three devils, fell from his head. When he perceived it, he smiled. Some of the hired soldiers standing by said, Put it on him again so that he might be burned along with the devils, his master for whom he served on earth. And rising at the order of the executioner from the place where he was praying, he said with a loud and clear voice so that his friends could plainly hear him, Lord Jesus Christ, I am willing to bear most patiently this humbly and dreadful uh, ignominious and cruel death for thy gospel and for the preaching of thy world. Then they decided to take him among the bystanders. He urged and begged them not to believe that he in any way held, preached, or taught the articles which had been charged by false witnesses. Then having been divested of his clothing, in other words, they stripped him naked, he was tied to a stake with ropes, his hands tied behind his back, and when he was turned facing east, some of the bystanders said, let him be not turned facing east because he's a heretic. Turn him from the west. So that was done. When they had bound by the neck with sooty chain, he looked at it and smiling said to the executioners, The Lord Jesus Christ, my Redeemer and Savior, was bound by a harder and heavier chain, and I, a miserable wretch, am not ashamed to bear being bound for him, uh, for his name by this one. The stake was like a thick post, half a foot thick. They sharpened one end and fixed it to the ground in that meadow. They placed two bound bundles of wood under the master's feet. When tied to the stake, he still had his shoes on and one shackle on his foot. Indeed, the sand bundles of wood intercepting with straw were piled around his body so that they reached up to his chin, for the wood amounted to two wagons or carloads. So they piled enough wood and straw on him to reach up yeah. to his chin, which is nuts. Um, uh, is the part about the old woman in that it's not, which I love okay. that. So, um, and this is, um, I'm, I'm reading from some Wikipedia here, and so it does mention that this is anecdotally. So, right. I mean, you can like take this with a with a grain of salt. Which cracks me up, though. But I like it. It's, it says so. Anecdotally, it has it has been claimed that the executioners had trouble intensifying the fire, and an old woman then came to the stake and threw a relatively small amount of brushwood on it. And upon seeing her act, a suffering huss then exclaimed, Sanctus uh, simplict, Simplicitus, which, uh, <laughs> which the equivalent to that translate, is translated a uh, holy simplicity. And it is still used today when commenting on a person's foolish action coming from the belief that he or she is doing something righteous. Um, it says, it said that uh, when he was about to expire, he cried out, Christ, son of the living God. Have mercy on us. Mm. And Huss's ashes were later thrown into the Rhine River as a means of preventing any veneration of his remains. This would this is so crazy. So this is from 1415, and it's so described vividly. 
He said, right after he said those, when he began to sing the third time, he was starting to sing when the wind blew the flame into his face and thus praying within himself and moving his lips and the head, he expired in the Lord. While he was silent, he seemed to move before he actually died for about the time one can quickly recite our father. When the wood of those bundles and ropes were con- uh, consummated, by the remains of the, but the remains of the body still stood in those chains, hanging by the neck. The executioners pulled the charred body um, uh, along with the stake down to the ground and burned them further by adding wood from the third wagon to the fire. And walking around, they broke the bones with clubs so that they would be incinerated more quickly. Finding the head, they broke it to pieces with clubs and again threw it in the fire. When they found his heart among the intestines, they sharpened a club like a spit, and impaling it on its end, they took particular care to roast and consume it, piercing it with spears until finally the whole mass was turned into ashes. And this then is they, ridiculous. Then they took everything and threw it in the river. Wow. So, it's so nuts. But one of my favorite things about this is another antidotal thing, but I've seen it so much that I, I have to believe it's, it's true. He says right before they put on his crown, he basically says, you will cook the goose today, but in a hundred years, you will not stop the swan from coming. What? Wow. <laughs> Which, if you think about this, this is almost a hundred years, like yeah, before Martin Luther comes, right? Wow, and changes all of it, which is so awesome to me. Yeah, that's so um, good. I'll find the exact quote if I can find it, but you can look it up as uh, "Desiring God" and "Ligonier Ministry." Also mention it. There's a whole bunch of uh, others that basically. <clears throat> mentioned the same thing because he always referred to himself as the goose. I seem to think that he would probably say something like right, this. Right. You may cook the goose today, but in a hundred years you will not stop this one. Wow. <laughs> so I imagine what he meant by that was his Hussites from rising up mm-hmm. and and handling this Yeah, because that's exactly what happens. I mean people exactly. responded not well at all. No, to this, the Bohemians got up in arms, literally, right, uh, because of this. And so, right after that happened, you have the uh, the Hussite Wars, right? Um, by March fourteen twenty, Pope Martin V issued a papal bull authorizing the execution of all supporters of Huss and Wycliffe. King Winisalis the Fourth died on August of uh, 1419, so he couldn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And Sigmund, uh, Sigismund of Hungary was unable to establish a real government in Bohemia due to the Hus- Hussite Rebellion. There were a lot of people killed mm-hmm. um, and exiled um, until they squelched that, that rebellion. But it didn't stop anything, really. Because a hundred years later, there was a man, Martin Luther. It's interesting. I was reading somewhere where he was debating with a guy about what he had been writing. And the guy said, you're nothing but a Hussite. And Luther's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, 
do you not know your history? You need to go research John Huss because you're saying the same thing that he said. And he was convicted and burned at the stake for being uh, a, uh, a teacher of heresy. And so Luther did that. He went and looked up Huss and he started reading him. And by account, he started reading Wycliffe. Right. And by the end, he said, you're right. I am a Hussite. <laughs> In fact, these guys got it right way before I did. But it actually gave him more courage than it than it dissuaded him, which was the hope of that guy, that it would dissuade him from going any further. And so he saw that, you know, I'm not alone in this. This was seen almost 200 years before me. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that holds true. And so... Well, and one thing that Huss is... Um, well, one thing that Huss did that, that Wycliffe did not do, like Huss turned it into a movement. He has very little um, writings, reform, reformative writings. Like the, you have this work um, the, of the church, of the or, church, yeah, uh, De Ecclesia, and um, and and that's really about it. But outside of that, he was preaching. Right, like, he was a sermonizer, and he was doing all this from the pulpit and um, and got the word out. Basically, uh, people are. Um, they attribute the spread of even doctrines he didn't hold to, like the the teachings against transubstantiation. Right. The reason why that became like that spread to Prague um, shortly after all of this, and it's like, where did that come from? Well, it came from the fact that Huss was preaching Wycliffe. Let's read some Wycliffe. Right. And the next thing you know, it's spreading. His teachings exactly, and um, he was known as the bulldog. People called him the bulldog of Wycliffe, <laughs> which is pretty cool when you think about it. But yeah, he was a great preacher. Mm-hmm. Again, over three thousand sermons preaching once a day created a movement among people, which is says something about preaching. I thought this was an interesting <laughs> um, um, epilogue here. Um, nearly six centuries later. 1999, Pope John Paul II expressed, quote-unquote, deep regret for the (laughs) cruel death inflicted on John Huss, (laughs) and added deep sorrow for Huss's death and praised his moral courage. (laughs) So he's basically got an apology. Right. Sorry about that. Posthumously. My bad. 600 years later. But hey... Maybe shouldn't have burnt you at that stake. Better late than never. That's right. All right, that's all we got. All right, you ready to... Do you have some news for us? I do. And now, the news. So, uh, I don't know if you've heard about what happened on October 27th, but it was pretty terrible. A synagogue was shot up. Have Mm -hmm. you heard about that? Mm -hmm. The Pittsburgh synagogue? Yes. Um, Tree of Life... uh, Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood, which I guess is a pretty affluent neighborhood, um, was having their Sabbat morning services when a man walked in and started a twenty-minute shooting spree that ended up in eleven wow deaths and nine injuries. Um, there was only one guy involved, forty-six-year-old guy named Robert Gregory Bowers. I guess he was he was shooting it up and yelling racial slurs the whole time, and he was really he had a 
he was uh, um, upset with the Jewish community for some reason. He's just a nut job. So, anyways, this has caused a huge backlash um, in the media, of course, with the whole gun violence thing. Yeah, yeah. But it's just uh, it's a sad, sad incident. So we need to be in prayer for the Pittsburgh uh, Jewish community as they're they're trying to heal from that and figure out how, you know how we can reach across and and show love to our Jewish uh, brothers and sisters. It's just a, a terrible. Yeah, terrible twenty thing. minutes. It's like how does something like that go on for twenty minutes? And he he survived it too. They didn't kill him, and he didn't kill himself. Usually, That's those, amazing. Those end up in that person's death, right? And so, yeah, it was it was. Quite... It also says something about him too. It's like you can do this for twenty minutes, and you can only kill. I mean, yeah, it's bad that that many people died. But you're thinking if this is going on for twenty minutes, you're thinking more people than that are going to die, right? But it's kind of strange. It's it's very odd. So. Anyways, um, let's see here. The Museum of the Bible said that five of its most famous artifacts are fake. What? Yep. Since the grand opening on November 17th, the Museum of the Bible has housed the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are discovered near the Dead Sea back in the mid-1900s. These scrolls are a vital part of history for Christianity, and they hold the earliest existing copies from the books of the Hebrew Bible. And in, have In Jerusalem, right? Uh, yes. And have yeah, yeah, I've been there deepened our understanding of the scriptures as a whole. But it turns out five out of the 16 of these scrolls being held at the museum are fakes. Questions about the authenticity were raised two years ago by a few museum-funded scholars, but weren't analyzed until recently. When a team of experts analyzed the museum's fragments and found characteristics inconsistent with ancient origin, they decided to pull them from the museum. They are no longer up for display. Wow. Jeffrey Koa, chief uh, curational officer of the museum, said they wished um, the results had been different. But this is a big leaning opportun- learn- learning opportunity. Though we hope the testing would render uh, different results, this is an opportunity to educate the public on the importance of verifying the authenticity of rare biblical facts and elaborate uh, testing process undertaken in our community uh, our commitment to transpa- uh, transparency. Holy ghost fire, that's awesome. <laughs> awful. So, yeah, it is. Holy ghost fire, that's awful. <laughs> that is very Don Redeen, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> A new film company wants to be the Christian Marvel. They're Irwin Brothers, a duo behind the surprising box office, hit, box office hit I Can Only Imagine earliest year, have shared their future ambitions for the Christian film industry. And Serenity Now, they're comparing their new company to the Christian Pixar or a Christian Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> Those aren't even the same. Right. I, I love this. The brothers told the Baptist Press that they want their new company to be a cooperative a collective of filmmakers and talent that work to release a pipeline of event movies that serve the church. (laughs) The brothers explain that the Christian film industry is competitive, (coughs) but their version, sorry, but their vision of the Christians in Hollywood to work together to release a more consistent state of high-profile faith-based titles. I don't know why I'm laughing. (laughs) But, dude, don't compare yourself to Disney. 
or Marvel. That's nuts. <laughs> Come on, you're yeah. There's no way you're gonna be as big as Disney or Marvel. That's so dumb. No. Anyways, man, that's all I got because my other pages closed because of this band chat thing opened up. Oh really? Yes. <laughs> I hate that. I don't even. I don't even remember what they were. They were sitting there ready for me to talk about. Oh, really? No, uh, no Pope news or no anything. Pope news today. Wow, which is That's... it's kind of sad. I know his approval ratings at an all time low. Have you heard about that? No, I've not heard that. Maybe we'll bring it up in the next issue. Do we have any voicemail or anything? No feedback. No, it's been a quiet one. We need to hear from you guys. Yeah. So. Uh... Tell us what you think, man. That's right. Tell us about John Huss. Who's your favorite Protestant reformer? Yeah. <laughs> if you could make an action figure of one of the Protestant reformers, who would it be? We haven't even hit the big ones yet. No. <laughs> what I love is you could do like Luther with a lever action arm with a hammer. <laughs> right. I think I've actually seen action figures for Luther, yeah, for, for Luther. Well, you have a Luther, actually. Yeah, yeah. Right well, there. that's a Lego, a Lego Luther, Lego Luther, which is genius. Was that actually made by Lego? I, I doubt it. Uh, I don't think so. I love that. Where it, did you get that? Uh, my daughter gave me that. <laughs> Your daughter's awesome. Yeah, she is. She also gave you the uh, Tyndale quote. Yes, she did. She had that printed. It, that was a um, an Instagram that I posted like right I don't know years ago, and she snagged it off of Instagram and turned it into a little uh, framed photo. Sure, it's cool. Yeah, it's pretty epic. All right, you ready? Yeah, let's do this. The Theonauts are part of the Great Commission Transmission Network, using new media and social networking to go into all the world and to proclaim the good news to everyone. To find out more, go to gctnetwork.com, subscribe to the newsletter, stay up to date with all our shows, including Finding Christ in Cinema and the Secret Fire Podcast. Visit our website at theonotspodcast.com for show notes and outlines. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or your favorite podcast catcher. Be sure to rate us because that helps us reach a larger audience. There are several ways you can contact us and leave us feedback. Send us an email to theonauts at gctnetwork.com. Or call us on our voicemail line, 972-885-7270. Tweet to us on Twitter using at Theonautical. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Theonauts. And if you like us and want even more Theonauts, drop us a buck or two at patreon.com slash Theonauts. Your patronage helps in our expenses like hosting fees and equipment costs. And don't forget to tune in again and explore the vast reaches of God's Word with us. All right, Jeremiah, thanks for being here, brother. Thank you, David. God bless. This has been the Theonauts Podcast. Call us with your questions or comments at 972-885-7270. That's 972-885-7270. We'd love to hear from you. You are tuned in to the GCT Network. This is your great commission. This is your great commission transmission. At gctnetwork.com. Get the Marines, get the Taliban, get the Mormon Tabernacle Choir if you have to, but find the Pillar of Salt. Brothers and sisters, come together, hallelujah, the Pope is here.